it was 1941 that a high school football coach from Pampa, Texas, named Otis Mitchell, moved all the way across the state to Marshall, Texas. And his very first day on the job, he walked out on the practice field and blew his whistle to call the team together. And when they gathered around, he began to speak, and this is what he had to say. He said, gentlemen, my name is Otis Mitchell. I'm your new coach. I think it will be better for all of us if I tell you right now that I have not come to Marshall to coach a losing football team. There is no such thing as a good loser. I do not want good losers on my football team. If any of you are satisfied to lose, turn in your suits right now, this very minute. I'm looking for boys who want to win and want to win it all. The world is full of good losers. I want good winners. That's how that in his book, I Pass, Hall of Fame quarterback Y. Tittle describes his first meeting with Coach Mitchell. Our text this morning is one where our Lord encourages us to be winners also. Winners not on the football field. Winners not on the basketball court. Winners not on the racetrack. But winners in living the Christian life. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, a first century preacher is speaking to a group of fellow Christians. Christians that are finding their new life in Christ beset with difficulties. In fact, it's so hard and so difficult that they're actually wondering if they wouldn't do well to just give up the whole enterprise. They're considering quitting. And going back to the ways of Judaism. And so to encourage them and make them winners. To give them new heart and new courage. He speaks the words of our text. He's just finished talking about the heroes of the faith. He's given us what is in Hebrews 11 I refer to as God's hall of fame of the faithful. And in chapter 12 he says, Wherefore? Seeing we are also encompassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that doth so easily beset us and run with patience the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He's seeking to steady them. And in seeking to steady them and encourage them to win for Christ, He does not make an appeal to their cowardice. And He does not make an appeal to their love of ease. He tells them with blunt honesty that the good life is costly. He tells them that being a Christian is a serious, exacting business. He tells them that to be a Christian is actually to be a spiritual athlete. 
So in the imagery, he takes them to the stadium. And taking them to the stadium, he shows them the runners preparing for the race. And he says, living the Christian life, living for Jesus is like a race that has to be run. He's already told them in chapter 11 that living for Jesus is going to be costly. With the examples of all of those heroes of the faith, He's told them that the life of faith is one that's always been expensive. That's what He told them talking about the heroes of the faith. Because if you read chapter 11, you see they were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and tormented. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. But they lived grandly because they dared to pay the price for living grandly. Now when he speaks of the Christian life as a race to be run, Let's run with patience. The race that is set before us. He's speaking, my friends, in harmony with the New Testament. John is the author of Revelation. And John pictures the life of the saint as a life that clashes with conflict. Giving us a glimpse of those who've won. John tells us they came up out of great tribulation. And he tells us the business of being a Christian is an earnest and costly business. Paul speaks to this same purpose. Paul, if you remember, spent a lot of time in prison. And spending a lot of time in prison meant that Paul was around soldiers a lot. So a lot of the language that comes to us from the Apostle Paul is filled with the imagery of the stadium and the imagery of the battlefield. He's actually picturing himself in the ring with his boxing gloves on when he says, So I fight, not as one who beats the air. I don't fight as someone that's just boxing on air. I fight as someone that's got an opponent out there. That's in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 26. Again, he's in the ring. He's got the boxing gloves on in 2 Timothy 4 when he says, I have fought the good fight. And then just in the very next sentence, he's on the racetrack and he says, I have finished my course. And in the Ephesian letter, Paul's on the battlefield again. Because in chapter 6 and verse 13, he encourages those Ephesians to put on the whole armor of God. Now think about all that. How did these early saints come by their conviction that to be a Christian involved conflict? Well, they learned it through their own experiences. And it was also something they learned from the experience of fellow saints. But above all, they learned it from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ never offered any invitation or said anything to any man or woman on the top side of God's green earth to appeal to our cowardice or to appeal to our softness. Remember the time that someone came to Him and said, Lord, are there few that are going to be saved? Jesus did not answer as to whether there would be few or many. Jesus rather said, strive 
to enter in. Think about that word strive. That carries with it the concept of labor. The concept of conflict. The concept of trial. Strive, Jesus says. Strive as if you were in a game or a contest. Struggle as if you were in a battle. Agonize the way Jesus agonized in Gethsemane. The Hebrew writer says, if you're going to win, if you intend to win, you've got to be prepared to give your very best. And that involves running this race stripped of all handicaps, such as the handicap of positive sin. That means we have to give up those things we know that are wrong. Because sin separates us from God and therefore weakens us. And nothing saps our strength and slows us down so much as sin does. You remember Samson of old? As long as Samson remained loyal to his vow, and as long as Samson remained loyal to God and the will of God, Samson was unconquerable. But when Samson broke his vow, and Samson was disloyal. He was as weak as any other man. We've got to wait, lay aside every sin. We've got to lay aside every weight. You know, there are a lot of practices, a lot of pastimes, a lot of things that are innocent in themselves that can actually become weights and hold us back in living for Jesus. You see, when anything becomes more important than God. When anything takes priority over our service to God, when anything replaces God as first in our lives, it becomes sin. You know, there are things that can, can become sin that are innocent and wholesome. You know, there's things like going out to the lake and going, and reeling in a fish. That's a great activity. Well, some people think it's a great activity. I think it's silly. You can buy that stuff for four or five bucks a pound over at Brookshire Brothers. Or you can go hunting. But if it takes place or priority over God, then it becomes sin. I've even known people that like to go out and they take and they swing a golf club. I've done that a couple of times. I gave it up about 50 years ago. When Bryant graduated from high school, Bryant loved, he, he thought he was going to play golf. So I went to play golf with Bryant one Saturday morning. On about the third tee, he said, Dad, is, is the game coming back to you? I said, yeah, it's coming back to me. Why well, I gave up this stupid game. I could hit the ball. I could hit the ball good. I just could never see where it went. And this one's going to hurt. This one's going to really hurt. I've known people that would get up before daylight and drive three or four, maybe five hours to sit on a cold piece of metal 
in 30 degree weather to watch 22 men fight over a little leather pouch about that big. See, I finally got to my vice, didn't I? I don't care a thing about hunting. I don't care a thing about fishing. I don't care a thing about playing golf. I sat in a rainstorm with a poncho on watching a football game. I love it. But when that becomes more important to me than God, then that becomes a weight that's holding me back from my service to God. What's the sanest test of our pastimes and recreation as Christians? As Christians, we're out to win the race. And we're determined to play the game successfully. Anything that hinders my service to God is a weight that has to be cast aside. In this great Christian race, we have to cast aside everything that hinders us in our service to God. Well, what helps us to run the race? What helps us to win and what helps us to be our best? What did he say? Let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith. We're looking forward. We're not looking in the rearview mirror. We're looking to what's out yonder in the future. It was Satchel Paige that said, Don't look back. Something might be gaining on you. The writer of Hebrews reminds us to run the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Now, I know it's going to sound a little corny, but it's not. Or it's not meant to be. We can't hope to win this Christian race running in circles. And we can't win the race with our eyes turned backwards. Does the name Roy Regals mean anything to anyone? Does the name Jim Marshall mean anything to anyone? I clearly see none of you have ever read strange but true football stories, have you? Regals played for the California Golden Bears. And in 1925, playing against Georgia Tech in a close, tight ball game, he recovered a fumble. And in those days, it didn't matter where on the field you recovered the fumble, it was legal to advance the ball. But in all the confusion of things, Regals got turned around and was racing toward the wrong goal line with the fumble. And was about to score for Georgia Tech. One of his players caught him inside the 10-yard line and one of his own players tackled him before he scored. Because he was looking the wrong way. He was running in the wrong direction. Ironically, in 1964, Jim Marshall playing on the defensive line for the Minnesota Vikings did the same thing in a game against the San Francisco 49ers. Now, if you're ever playing Trivial Pursuit and those two things come up, you've got the answer to it. They ran the wrong direction. Why? Because they were facing the wrong direction when they started running. We run the race looking to Jesus, looking forward, looking toward the future. And we run that race in the realization that we are part of a great team. 
We're not out to play this game or run this race alone. All around us are others who see our visions, others who dream our dreams, and they touch elbows with us, and they are on the team with us, and they give courage to us, and they hearten us in this race. There are some fighting by our side today that will fight by our side tomorrow. There are some that fought by our side yesterday and they finished their race and passed on to the other side. That's that great cloud of witnesses the writer was talking about. We're encompassed with this great cloud of witnesses. Let us run with patience the race set before us looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That great cloud of witnesses. Not merely spectators. Their lives give testimony to the value and the reality of the prize. We run this race heartened by the fact that we are not alone. And we have to remember something else about this Christian race. We've got to have endurance. This Christian race is not a hundred yard dash, hundred yard dash and we're done. It's a cross-country marathon. It's something that stretches out yonder into the sunset. So we've got to have persistence. And we've got to guard against probably the greatest peril there is in the Christian life. And that's the peril of fainting. The peril of quitting. The peril of just throwing up our hands and giving up. Remember what Paul said in Galatians 6 and verse 9, We will reap in due season. If we faint not, if we don't have the grit, if we don't have the grace to persist, no power in heaven and earth can give us the victory. Write this down. It's on the final exam. If we've got the grit and we've got the grace to persist and continue the race, nothing on the top side of God's green earth and nothing in the depths of hell can defeat us and keep us from winning. That persistence that comes and brings us the victory comes because we look to Jesus, the author, the captain, the finisher, the example of how the race should be run. Jesus ran. And Jesus ran the race with His eye on the goal. Jesus' goal was the joy set before Him. The joy of perfect conformity to the will of God. The joy of yielding completely to that yoke that He Himself said was kindly. And it was the joy of victory. Not just victory for Him, but victory also for others. Jesus ran the race. Even though it cost Him something. He ran in the face of opposition. We can expect opposition too, folks. That's why this was written to these Hebrew Christians. Some of them felt the fact they were suffering was an indication of God's indifference. And the writer says, no, it's a mark of God's love and of your sonship. There are times that the road of vital Christian living is a road that's beset by difficulties. Jesus ran in the face of opposition. He ran in spite of opposition. And the goal that Jesus looked to was so enduring that He went to the cross.
we look to Jesus. We look to Him as the author, the example, the perfecter of our faith. Our friend. Our helper. The word that's used here that's translated looking to Jesus. In the original language, that word carries the meaning of looking away from everything else. We look away from everything else and we look to Jesus. We look away from our own handicaps. We look away from self. And we look to the One who is able to supply our every need. You remember the night of the tempest that's recorded for us in the Gospels? Can you see by an eye of faith those disciples sitting in that little boat? Manning those oars and getting nowhere against the storm as the winds were blowing, the rains were pelting them, the lightning was flashing, the thunder was roaring. And they looked up from their labor and they saw Jesus coming across the waters. And at first they thought it was a ghost. They cried out in fear, oh my! And then came that comforting, calming voice of Jesus. It is I. Be not afraid. Well, blustering Simon immediately went from cowardice to courage. And he said, Lord, if it's you, bid me come to you on the water. And He's ready to attempt the impossible. Jesus says, simply come. See, Simon, he steps across the side of the boat. He steps onto the water. And there is Simon looking at Jesus Christ and he's walking on the water. And then he realizes where he is. And he realizes what he's doing. And he sees the storm and he looks down. He took his eyes off Jesus. And what happened when he took his eyes off Jesus? He went swimming. Because he took his eyes off the Lord. When he looked at his difficulties, he became a loser. If we want to be winners, we have to look to Jesus. Now the question this morning is, where is your focus? Are you looking to Jesus this morning as the author and the finisher of your faith? Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? Have you made Him Lord and Master of your life? If not, I beg you to do that before you leave this morning. In simple trusting faith, confessing His name before men, repenting of everything that's sin in your life and being buried in the waters of baptism for the washing away of past sins. It'll make you a Christian, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else, just a simple New Testament Christian. It'll make the declaration that Jesus is the Lord and Master of your life. It'll make the declaration that you're looking to Jesus as the author of your faith. But maybe once upon a time you did that. But Jesus Christ hasn't been Lord and Master of your life. I've said this at least a thousand times. This will make a thousand and one. If Jesus Christ is not Lord and Master of all of your life, He's not Lord and Master at all in your life. Maybe you need to come back. Let brothers and sisters pray with you and for you. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what your world is like, what your life is like. But if there are changes that need to be made and things that we can do to help you with those changes, this is your opportunity to come and let us help you with those changes as together we stand and while we sing.